0: that's chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary DW group void We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus
1: From NBI Studios. This is Truth and Justice, a crowdsourced investigation in real time. I'm Bob Roth.
2: Ahoy, friends, and welcome to the Truth and Justice Friday follow-up for episode 59, Moore's closing. We are without our dear and wonderful Zach today. He is a bit under the weather, so we are all wishing him well. And so we're going to take a quick break, and then Bob and I will be back to answer your listener questions.
1: All right, thanks everybody for joining us today. As I'm sure Janet mentioned in the intro, we are sans Zach today. Uh, he's not even on an assignment today. He is Zach's Zach's a little under the weather, doesn't have a voice, and couldn't make it. Uh, but Janet and I are gonna are gonna are gonna push through. And yeah. today's episode of which show are we doing today? <laughs>
2: this is Truth and Justice.
1: That's the one. Yeah, the Truth, truth and Justice. Sorry, uh, getting a little mix up. Uh, real quick before we get into the episode and all your questions, which we're going to do. Um I do want to address um just out of out of transparency and um and mild irritation on my part um I do want to address something that was brought up on the fan page uh as is typical when we come up with an episode that has some new evidence in it there's a group of folks that try to derail the conversation away from that and to another direction um but of course and I was cu- accused of being biased and not presenting the state's case and all that so I want to address it here uh there was a group that, that that got together on one page and then came over on our page to point out the fact uh that Christian uh the claim was that Christian lied in his first interview because he claimed that he didn't know Becky was dead. Um and they had cropped out and screenshot um a small portion of that interview where Michael says, Well, you know, he's talking about you know, why they're there and he goes, Uh, Becky, you, you know, you know, she's dead, right? And Christian says, no, Robert had, and then he kind of tails off. And then that's the part in the interview. You can go back and read the transcript, um, where, um, Michael's telling him, like, I know, I know this is nerve wracking, but calm down, do all that stuff. Um, and so anyway, if you're on the fan page, you saw, there's like this huge thread where everybody debating whether Christian did know that Becky was dead or not. Um, and they pointed out that John earlier in the interview before Christian was there had said that, um, that he had seen the tragedy is the way he puts it in the Mm -hmm. paper. And Christian had told him, uh, that, uh, that, uh, yeah, they, they, they know that girl that's Robert's ex-girlfriend and, um, and that they had plans. uh, His dad says that they had plans to go to a barbecue or something up there, Mm -hmm. uh, that day. And so they said, you know, with those things together, since, the interview was on the 28th on the 27th was the day that it was, her body was finally identified. And then then that was put out to the public. There's a newspaper article on the 27th that said that her body had been identified. Um, So putting those together, uh, they said there's, there's no way that, uh, that Robert or that Christian didn't know Becky was dead because his dad saw the paper. Now granted there was lots of newspaper articles over the course of those 10 days, uh, about the case, his dad said he had been out of town and he came back and was looking at the papers. So we don't even know which paper he was looking at. Mm-hmm. Uh, but of course, Becky and John and Vicky's pictures were in most of those articles. Um, but so the, the the claim was made and, and several people said that this is one of the reasons they think Christian is guilty, because why would he lie to them and say that he didn't know Becky was dead? Um, I want to address that because what they didn't tell you or what they cropped out of that page was the rest of Christian's answer Um, After the calm down and everything, Christian says, uh, Michael's asked, like, what do you know about it? And Christian says, I know there was a fire. I know there was three people dead. There were two people that were in the house. And then there was one one body that was, he says, in a dumpster or something uh, is, is what he says. And then he says what he had started to say earlier was, last I heard from Robert, they hadn't identified the body yet. Uh, that you guys didn't know who was there yet, but I'm guessing, you know, now. Mm. So that was the full context of, of, of that. So, uh, if you were to read that, you would see me saying like, this is nothing. He didn't lie and say that he didn't know Becky was dead. He didn't even say he didn't know Becky was dead. What he said was he knew three people had died. Mm-hmm. He knew two were in the house. He knew one was outside. He thinks in a dumpster and he thought, that the body hadn't been identified yet, and then Michaels tells him, "Yes, it has been identified yet." So, out of full transparency, because I don't want to be biased, uh, I want to make sure to uh, point out that I I saw that, had the conversation, and if you want to read the transcript, go read Christian's transcript from September twenty eighth. So, when you see the claims that Christian lied and said he didn't know Becky was dead, what Christian actually said was that he knew there were people dead, didn't know that they had officially identified the body. Yet, so I just wanted to make sure the, to cover that uh, before we move on to this episode to make sure that we're covering everything. Got it. Um, as again, that was, uh, it, I was, and I will, and and we're gonna move on. But um, I will point out, you know, I, I had conversations in that thread with people who claimed uh, that my entire my entire investigation has been bias uh, because I haven't presented the case. I've asked them what what have I not presented literally presented the entire prosecution's case. We've now, uh, as of this coming Sunday, we'll have presented the entire trial. Um, all the documents out there at one point I asked this actually this specific person, what things do you want me to cover that you think I haven't covered that make them look guilty? We covered that. I've also invited anyone to come on and uh, and make the case for guilt. Um and so then I was told that because uh Robert's mom, Kathleen, one time in one of these uh one of these chats um uh did a did a super chat for 5 bucks or 4.99 for us uh which was really nice of of Kathleen to do and i was told that that clearly that was my motivation for committing the last year and a half of my life to this to this case it was all hoping that Kathleen would buy me a cup of coffee uh which finally happened last week so there's 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 my bias i'll stop being snarky you only you only can listen to so much bullshit before you just got to call people out on their bullshit. And with that being said, Janet, what do you think about Moore's closing argument?
2: <laughs> I liked it. I'm I'm interested. You know, there were some folks who um, and I sort of put this first in the uh, the follow up order. Uh, there were some folks who, you know, in the in the episode, you do say and you said it, I think, in last week's follow up that you weren't necessarily a huge fan of Moore's mm-hmm. approach. But there was a lot of really interesting information in there. Uh Valeria very astutely uh had discovered just prior to you covering Moore's closing that the lighter had been found was in evidence, at least was listed in evidence along with um some other stuff that you get into in this episode but so there were some folks who walked away like keith and liz and and Alex, who kind of liked the closing and um and were maybe interested to hear a little bit more from you on why you had such a strong reaction to it in the slightly more negative category. Uh,
1: to be clear, I didn't, I don't have an issue at all with the entirety of Moore's closing. What I didn't care for was the presentation of the imaginary cen- scenario. And, and the reason was really, that's to me, it, it's, it's fair as fair. I've called out the state for creating scenarios that weren't supported by the evidence and so – and that's that's what Moore did in, in a couple of instances, right? So he, he tried to fit a scenario together that fit the evidence, but then he also filled in like, – like, you know, Becky called Robert on Monday. Well, we don't know if Becky called Robert on Monday. We don't have the – he says from the home phone. And he said that specifically because we don't have the home phone records from that day, and we don't have Robert's records from that day. So there's no way to prove that happened. That was my – my only issue was that first segment where he gave the imaginary scenario. After that – I think he made some really good points and and truthfully the part that I thought that was the most bri- brilliant probably strong word but it was a, it was a great strategy uh was the way he handled Jeremy Witt rather than just saying like this guy's full of shit don't listen to him like he's not he's not credible he's not trustworthy I think that uh more accurately picked up on the fact that no one probably believed Witt um, and so he spends a lot of, and if you read the, I, I talked about it, but if you read the transcript, you'll see he spends a fair amount of time driving home the fact that Jeremy Witt is a linchpin of the state's case. You know, so he kind of, it's kind of a set him up and knock him down scenario where he's, you know, he's saying, listen, they have to have Jeremy Witt in order to have a case. If you don't believe Jeremy Witt, then they don't have a case. You have to, he's he's crucial to their case. And then moves on to say, and here's all the reasons why you can't believe Jeremy Witt. Mm. Um, I thought I thought that was well done. So yeah. yeah, the the second half of his closing I did like. I didn't like the first part. Um, that said, I think that uh, you, I don't know if he had much of an option outside of that. Um,
0: well, because
1: yeah. the state presented a scenario, so like you have to present
2: who's got the a best story
1: scenario. And he was handcuffed by the fact that he couldn't. Name any alternate suspects, yeah, uh in his closing, so he there wasn't a lot much more he would do for me i liked I did like dolan's approach better, um which was just really hammering away like these things are not proven, they're telling you things happened that didn't that aren't proven by the evidence
2: yeah i i again just i mean I know I just interrupted you, and I apologize for that, but just the whole who tells the best story you know we've talked about it so much on the podcast in general, and so. I wasn't necessarily expecting a story to be told, a scenario to be given that could mm-hmm. help paint a picture that would at least pull focus off of the story that the state told. So, I was I had mixed feelings about it because I you know, I felt like I would probably feel compelled to do the same thing. I mean, just because I do feel like we we kind of have an understanding that, you know, you can't just say they didn't prove their case, that people want to have a narrative, and so he did provide some kind of a narrative the problem was that maybe it wasn't the best mar- narrative and like you said he was you know he was also not able to say a lot of things that i'm sure could have helped yeah. that um but i just want to really quickly shout out sl on the uh the chat because just to circle back very quickly to the idea of bias um you know we've had people and uh, f- coming from the opposite direction sl says i know people were complaining on previous seasons for the emotional pulls on them and so early on you would kind of made a decision not to publish a bunch of stuff that would that could you could be accused of tugging at people's heartstrings. Mm-hmm. Um, and so now we're coming towards the end of the season. And in fact, you could you could actually argue there's an absence of bias in that you haven't given the human beings behind yeah. what's happened who are in prison the same kind of voice that maybe you have in past seasons. So just to kind of counterbalance the bias idea um, there have also been folks who are like, I want to hear more about the guys. I want to know mm-hmm. them better now that we have talked about the evidence and the facts. And uh, and so I know there's been a lot of interest in that. And and so SL brings that back up now.
1: Yeah, and and that that's coming. Um, we're, we're working on trying to do an interview with with the guys. At least Robert. You know, they the two guys have two different legal teams that have two different views on. How they should interact with media. So there's a, a lot of that's up in you know, up in the air. But we're working on something like that. But there's definitely some family interviews and some people from the family that people are going to hear from. Um, I I also want to point out from the ch- from the chat, Montana uh, makes makes a good point, and I agree with her. She says um, I think it was problematic that Dolan stressed the importance of presenting the evidence rather than telling a story divorced from the evidence. But then more comes up right after. And tells a fantastical story.
2: Absolutely, could not agree more, Montana. Yeah. that's and, a and, great point.
1: Yeah, and I'll tell you that in uh, what we're going to get this week, which is the state's rebuttal, uh, Aki caught onto that as well. Um, uh-huh. And, and, and the other part about the, the issue I have with the narrative approach that Moore took too is, I think what you run the risk of is if you say something that the jury doesn't buy, then I think it affects your. Credibility, sure. You know, like even like you know, and I mentioned that in Dolan's too. When Dolan talks about the garage door, like you know, after Tim left, then he came back and then put accelerant on the on the body and lit it on fire again, and then and then and then went in and closed the garage door. I always worried like if if the jury is like "Mm, that sounds like nonsense, then will they think the rest of it is nonsense too?
2: Right. Uh okay, so let's um let's move into some specifics uh from the Facebook post. Speaking of the cell stuff that comes up in this episode, um, Kristen says, "Can you explain what you meant about the cell tower being connected to the guard device?" I was very confused.
1: The it, it's gar device. Hopefully, I got that right. I think I did. The the device they talk about it in Gillette's testimony. He talks about what what it is and how it works. Um, it's, it's, it's a device made by gladiator, I believe. And it's, it's, it's a device that's connected to the car and computers and stuff that that's what they use to drive around when they're driving around to the drive test to gather all the data. But it was, and I had never considered until Moore said that. And then also back from my conversations with, uh, Mike Dowd, our expert, and then other experts that I've talked to that weren't able to come on and do interviews where they said all the time, like different phones have different. Like you can have two phones right next to each other, and one will connect to one tower, and one will connect to a different one because, you know, they have different external antennas, they have different internal antennas, and that got me thinking when Moore brought that up that these drive tests were done. Like when they show they could find these tiny little spots where five twenty three could catch some coverage on seventy four, that was from the guard device, which, uh, from what I was able to find online, looks like they're they're like external antennas that are on the car, and then make and it got me wondering, well. So that was able, you know, something that might have a 12-inch external antenna could maybe make a connection to that tower from eight miles away. But could, you know, a Nokia with a one-inch antenna inside the car make that same connection? And I'm not saying it can't. I'm saying we don't know because that wasn't done. Um, and, and, And to be honest, the entire drive tests that were done are problematic, in my opinion, shouldn't have been allowed to begin with because they were done 10 years later. You know they can you know they can say that you know they said you know Verizon says basically the towers everything is is essentially the same first of all, I don't think that's entirely true. Mm. second of all, you know even if nothing changed with the towers what what did change for sure was the phones that are connecting to the tower, buildings around the towers there's you know construction there's all these different things that have changed you know over the twelve years between when the crime happened and when the when the gladiator report was was done and made, I don't see how when I think back on it, how is that even allowed to be used as evidence? You can't say, you know, I checked the cell coverage in an area 12 years later, and that's what now what we're going to use to prove where these guys were at. That's that's crazy to me that that they were able to do that. So and then even think like in 2006, 3G was just coming out right that a 3G signal by 2018 4G you know they were the 4G LTE was they're different signal I don't see how they can say nothing changed something right. changed right the, the the types of signals that were coming off those towers have changed and and I don't and again I'm not an expert so I don't know maybe those have the exact same range and everything between a 3G and a 4G or LTE or now 5g but um it seems it, it seems very very strange to me that that was even allowed in.
2: Oh, I was going to ask if the defense did, brought up any of that.
1: I think just what you saw in the closing just, just the fact that, that there was no that there was no phones ever used. But the, and and that gets back to the root of the question. That that's what I meant was, right. you know, they were driving around with a device connected to a car um not driving around with a phone in a car.
2: I mean, you would um, think that would come up in cross when they were actually speaking to when the, when that part of the like trial was happening.
1: Yeah. And, and it may, I'd have to go back and review the, the testimony up on our website, but I ha- I'd have to go back and review the testimony. My guess is if it came up and cross, they may just ask, they may have just asked the question, did you ever use a phone or anything like that? But I don't, re- I don't recall that. Cause it was, cause it, cause, and I say that because it jumped out at me when yeah. I was reading Moore's yeah. closing when he said it, I'm like, Oh my God. Like, Besides and Chris in the chat mentions too, like on top of that, like traffic patterns, growth, everything changed over that time, which is exactly right. But then it yeah, it jumped jumped out at me that yeah they they had never used phones. So I don't know how and by the way, that can be the same for Bodmer's drive test. How in the hell does do they take a a drive test done in, done 12 years after the fact? To tell you how long it would have taken in a different vehicle with a different driver, how they were able to allow to use that to tell to tell the jury how long it would have taken Robert and Christian in an Acura 12 years earlier right. to make that drive. That's bananas, too. I don't I, I don't get how any of that was allowed.
2: And that would have been a pretrial. The the lawyers would have said, like, Your Honor, we argue that you can't even admit this in. you shouldn't be allowed to do this, which makes me yeah. wonder, like, just in general. I mean, you don't always hear about this in cases, um, but certainly in cases where we've people have taken a hard look at and when there's been, you know, tape of or. In-depth conversations about things like the O.J. trial or something, people do talk about the preferences or the preferential treatment that some people perceive was shown to the prosecution or to the defense um, Mm -hmm. in those various cases. And and so I have that's not something we have really talked about much um, for this case, but just those little moments that build up if it's you know, if you can see that a judge is kind of showing preferential treatment to the prosecution
1: yeah in terms and of where i the injections I know that, and
2: sustainings and all those sort of things happen,
1: yeah, and I know that in the in this case, you know there was a lot of the the uh, the defense took a lot of ls in pretrial, you know one of them being um alternate suspects, you know right. they were they were fighting to be allowed to bring up alternate suspects, and they just got shot down by the judge right.
2: Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Carrie says there has been a lot of talk of phone calls made. Do we know if Robert or Christian tried to call Becky's cell phone after the fire to help look for her? Um, I'm assuming, kind of along the same lines as like a never called. Hey, again, you know that kind of argument. Right. Maybe even if her cell was destroyed in the house, her voicemail would be still be active within the carrier system.
1: Yeah, no, no. There's no records of Robert ever trying to call her. I think so. Remember the Robert's first in a world where Robert's innocent.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: His first word, he knew that there was any issue. So, so again, I'm not asking you to believe he's innocent, but just imagine it for this scenario. Uh, that that he had nothing to do with this. So that would mean that he spent Sunday night with her blowing up his phone and him ignoring all of her calls. And then he gets up in the morning and then the first call he gets is from Javier um, telling him like there was a fire, there's all this going on, I can't get a hold of her, I'm going up there, goes up there and he's getting all the updates from Javier that there's people dead and her car's there, so on and so forth. Um, th- That would be... If in a world where Robert was innocent, that would be where where things would stand with him and he didn't make any calls. Now, that said, uh, Javier, after that, I think, did did still try to make calls. Um, and I think he'd said at one point that he just wanted to hear her voice on the voicemail. And I think even Jacob tried. Well, Jacob is a little different because Jacob was calling her. He just got, like, some information from Javier, didn't know what was going on. Yeah. And then he started calling Becky looking, oh, yeah. looking for her. Um, yeah. During that day. Um, But no, the short answer to the question is no, Robert never tried to call her after that.
2: Okay. Let's get into the hair and the lighter. Chris says, was the area where the green lighter was found photographed the night of the murder? Could this really have been missed? Family, friends, and neighbors must have been all over the scene in the week since this info was found.
1: I I have not seen any photos of the lighter even in place where it was found. It's just another – like the report says – it was uh, um, at, the, at the intersection of the driveway and Alpine Drive, northwest of there on the Friedley property, is where this lighter was found. There's no there's there's a there's a file of pictures that are their title is like Pablo and sifting through scene or whatever, and that's where these photos were found. And like we see one picture of the lighter and it's like set on a piece of paper or something to take a picture, but they never photographed it in place. So I don't know where. It was found, um, but that's a good point. It'd be worth it because there are some pictures out at the end of the driveway of like the fire trucks and stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, be interesting to see if it's out there, but there's no way to know. You know, if, if we had a photo showing like it's right there, then absolutely we could go look at some of those pictures and find that exact spot. But all we know is it was somewhere over there. Mm-hmm. Um so we don't really know where it was at. Uh, did they ask something about the hair, too, or was it just the lighter they were asking about?
2: Uh, uh, this is just my section of you know th- questions that came in that I organized that uh, have to do with either the okay. hair, the lighter, or both. Uh, Tracy says, did anyone say if they found footprints on the north side of the house where the hair and lighter were found? They made such a big deal about the footprints going out into the desert where the wheelbarrow track was, but I can't remember if they said anything about any other prints around the back of the house.
1: No, and remember that's what we've been complaining about since the beginning is there's a path from that back porch or the back door, which is where one where the back door is. Uh, and two, the area where um, was kind of the escape route uh, that was that was planned out that we heard about from Drew where they would um, escape but that would also come down on that back porch. There's a bay window right there that uses kind of a step to get down from the roof if they if they you know went out the upstairs window. And there's a path directly from that back door to directly where the body in the wheelbarrow was found. And we have no pictures of that path. You know, and Now, granted, there's a lot of firefighter tracks and stuff in there, but we have, they, it was never searched for evidence. They never used luminol, nothing to look for blood, nothing along that. So there were tracks all over the place from the firefighters. Right. So, So, you know, after the fact, I don't think footprints would be super helpful in that area. But obviously, if you found a pair of you know, tennis shoe prints, not fire boots, that would be worth noting, at least. Um, my issue with that was always like, at least go through that area and spray luminol and see if you can find any blood. But they didn't.
2: Right. Kristen says, could the hair on lighter have been tested, but the results weren't shared with the defense?
1: I'd hate to speculate on that. I mean, anything's possible. Um, and if that was the case, then that would obviously be... A massive, massive Brady violation, but I, I don't see any evidence that they do. Someone had mentioned to me um, that there was a, a a clump of hair found in a brush, in a hairbrush. Mm-hmm. I think from one of the cars hmm. that they had taken. We're going to test to use for DNA to try to um, try to ID Vicky's body, uh, but it wasn't used for that. So there's, I, I need to track that down and figure and figure that out. But this was not hair on a brush. This was just. Like somewhere north in the north side of the house was this clump of hair. That's all we know. And I have no record of, of it ever being tested.
2: OK, well, Kim had followed up uh, and mentioned the Brady possibility and even said, can the prosecution not proceeding with testing items that could have been exculpatory grounds uh, be grounds for an appeal?
1: No, no, not unless they're. Um, and again, I as I always, I'm not a lawyer, uh, but, m- but my understanding is it could only be used as grounds for an appeal if they now were to do testing on it and it was exculpatory. And I, and I want to make clear too, like there were, uh, of course, there were people that were like just mad about bringing it. I had people tell me it's ridiculous for me to even suggest that this hair could be anything of any importance. I'm not saying that it is. What I'm saying is it could be and we should know. Right. Th- like that's the story of this entire case. the The whole thing is we don't know if Robert and Christian's alibis checked out because they never checked. They never looked. They never tried to find out. We don't know if this hair is relevant because it was never tested. It was never checked out. We don't know if the lighter was relevant because it was never tested. It was never checked out. The scenario I gave in the episode is just like, here's one way this could have went. You find this, you find DNA profiles on the sock. It, everybody we know is excluded. Robert, Christian, I believe Ron, uh, Javier, Jacob—those are—they're all excluded as contributors from that DNA. So, okay, that very, in my opinion, very likely is your killer's DNA, but we don't know who it belongs to. They never run that through CODIS to see if they can find out who it belongs to. Uh, but then you also have this hair here. Well, how much more relevant would it be? Certainly, I think anybody being objective can agree. It's not out of the question for 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 Becky to have yanked a chunk of hair out of her attacker's head. That is, that's not unreasonable at all if, for something to happen. It happens all the time in cases like this. Um, but imagine if they had tested that for DNA. We still don't know who it is, but we know that that hair came from the same person that touched her sock. Now, how much more now is there a case against Robert and Christian at all? Probably not. And then throw the lighter in. What if we find in the lighter there's DNA there that matches one or either of those or both of those? You know, and I'm not saying that's the case. What I'm saying is we should know if that's the case. And, and I, I, I sincerely hope that the defense teams are, are working with the DA to do some DNA testing to get some of these answers.
2: Mm-hmm. Montana says what would it have taken for the defense to do any testing on any
1: items they would have had to have requested it I don't I don't know exactly how that process would work but they should have been able but the problem is too. like they don't know what all well they do because they get they get discovery at some point before the trial that tells them all the stuff that was collected this file that we have is the dis, the, the discovery file mm. Um But yeah, they. I I think they would have had to request for the state to test certain evidence, and then that information would have to be brought up. But Mm -hmm. obviously, they didn't.
2: Maury says, "I think it's only very recently that hair could be tested without the root. Does this hair have roots? And if not, could that have factored into why it wasn't tested?"
1: We don't know if it has roots because all we have is is one picture of it Mm -hmm. and a note in the report that it was there and a note that it was barcoded and put into evidence and it Mm -hmm. was never tested. So, but yes, there are. If not then now you can do DNA testing uh, uh, without a root on, mm-hmm. on hair. And that's one of the things, like, in the West Memphis 3 case that we're hoping, you know, would be nice if we could do some of that because there was hair testing done on some hairs, uh, but they weren't able to get full profiles because they didn't have nuclear DNA on, on them or they didn't have a root. Well, now they can get full profiles. And on the topic of DNA, somebody, Bob in the chat, said that, uh, and this is another thing I keep hearing, was that my DNA expert said that, that um you couldn't uh, you couldn't put the dna from the sock into codis and i have heard over and over again that it's ystr dna and you can't put that through codis some of the dna was ystr dna uh but as um perforia yeah as as she knows there was both ystr and autosomal can be run through codis uh there's no question about this i i there are some of those profiles or rock-solid profiles that have enough data to be put into CODIS, and the the examiner that found the DNA at the bottom said that it, it checked the box. I have to make sure to say they checked the box and didn't write this. They checked the box that it is ready to be uploaded to CODIS, okay. and they just didn't.
2: And as Jennifer pointed out in the, the Facebook follow-up chat, we don't even know if the hair was human or synthetic.
1: Right. We don't know anything about it. it. All we know is clump of hair. Astu- yeah, could have. Yeah, um, and it does and it look singed.
2: It Certainly looks singed to me. But again, yeah, I, that's just by eyeballing a photograph.
1: Yeah, yeah, I I agree. It looked like part of it. What part of it was singed? Um, and that's why the it's a huge deal. And again, it could turn out that it's nothing. Right. But this hair, it clearly wasn't like in my opinion is absolutely not from one of the victims, just based on the color and length you know it's not Becky or or Ron or um, John's mm-hmm. um Vicky we have pictures of Vicky as blonde, we have a picture of Vicky with brown hair. We have pictures of Vicky with her hair dyed red, so you know who knows if it could be Vicky's, and it's longer, but we know that Vicky's hair and head were like this did not come off Vicky's body mm-hmm. unless it was like yanked out in a struggle outside somewhere. My theory on it is it was probably that hair was probably from found outside. It was close enough to the fire that some of it got singed, mm-hmm. but it wasn't in the fire because it would have just been completely burned away um if it was inside the house. And we see the conditions of the of uh, those the bodies that were in, well I mean you guys haven't seen the conditions. I've right. I can pro- when you have entire legs and arms br- just burnt away, uh there's not hair left at the at the end of that that process. Understood. Um so, you know, it could be is there a possibility that it could be maybe Vicky's if there was some struggle outside you can't rule that out as a possibility, but to me, like that's a huge find. Like we have Becky who in in my, in my opinion was the surprise here. I think, I think Moore was pretty close in his act. You know, I agree pretty much with what he said about how Vicky, how Becky came into this, which was, they didn't know she was there. We talked about that months ago and that if she, you know, she's missing the shoe, we don't know how she died. If there was a struggle, like that could have been just laying right on the back porch. Because you also see, like, there's not a bunch of debris and stuff on that, like, Mm -hmm. the paper, whatever they take the picture on. So I I don't think this was sifted, right? So I I don't think they took a clump of ash, wet ash, and sifted through and found this hair there. To me, it looks like that hair was probably, you know, somewhere out near that area in the north side of the house. But it was probably just laying on the ground because, like, how would you see? It's black. And if you sifted it, it wouldn't stay in that clump together. And it would be filled with debris. Like, I think it was probably found right there, like, in the area where I think the struggle with Becky happened.
2: Hmm. Yeah, I can't. I mean, again, I can't or just can't really tell anything from the picture. It looks like it could be synthetic to me, but. I know there was also a thread on Facebook mentioning that some killers are known to wear disguises, are known to disguise their appearances, and even just the yeah. evidence that someone was in disguise is could potentially
1: be interesting. Yeah, you know, if we test and find out it's it's synthetic hair, so be it. Right, but this shouldn't be a question. That's my pro- my point right. is this yeah. shouldn't still be a question in 2023 whether or not that was real hair or synthetic hair. Yeah, Or who it belongs to, or if, if there was DNA in it. This shouldn't be a question now.
2: Yeah. Moving into the lighter, Sarah says, how dangerous is it to light gasoline using a lighter? I'm wondering what the chances are that the person might have gotten burned if they used a lighter like this to start the fire.
1: Well, you have to remember that the fire started with something, right? So you kind of narrow that down to a match or a lighter. One possibility is taking a match and just flinging it in there. And the other one would be would would be a lighter. And there's several different ways that can that can happen safely. And that would be, um, you know, pouring a trailer, which means you know, so you you fill the house with gas, and then you just like pour a little line of it to the outside. You light the very end of it; the fire runs in and explodes. Or using the lighter to light, say, you know, a wad up a wad of newspaper or something else, uh, or a stick to throw it in there. Like it, but but there has to be. It doesn't have to necessarily be the thing that touched the fire to the gasoline, but somehow the fire had to start. And that's either with a lighter or match. I think it's just as likely as one or one as the other.
2: Okay. Uh, Kate says about the lighter. Bob stated the police fire department kept people away from the scene, but didn't the neighbors get close to the house? Did Tim or the others smoke and just have them slip out of pocket?
1: I don't know. Again, it's a question that we could easily answer. Right. Um. Yeah, I know. Have, I have but yeah, I mean, that before the, before the police got there, yeah, the neighbors were all standing at the end of the driveway. And again, we don't know where the lighter was found. Was it 20 feet into the property? Was it one foot into the property? We don't know exactly where it was at. Um, Uli in the, in the chat says, what does process material mean? Uh, the key was found in the process material back there, too. Uh, the, the process material, I think, is th- the way I took it from reading the report. Is they were As the as they were sifting through debris, they were putting all the stuff that they had sifted through or processed into kind of a pile behind the house. Um, so that's what I took as process material. I do have a picture. I should put the picture up of it. But because I saw, like, it said they found uh, two keys on a chain in the process material, too.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Uh, and I was pretty excited about that. I found it because I was thinking, is that Becky's car key? So it's not. It's like a long chain. And then, like... Um, Keys to like a cheap lock, like you would have, like 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 a suitcase type lock, mm-hmm. something like that. It had, it had two keys like that on it, um, okay. or it could go to like a gun cabinet or or, or something like that. Um, I don't know, but those are like very clearly they're they're clumped up. There's debris on them. There's chunks on them, and that's something if you were sifting through ashes that you you know you would find during the sift, on like the hair. So that that's the confusing part, Uli too, is like with the with the hair as I was just mentioning, like. I certainly don't think it was like buried in a pile of wet cuz remember that that I've done this hundreds of times in my life it's t- it's a, it's a shitty job mm. you know when you're done you have ashes and and stuff that's all been soaked with water and it's wet and nasty and clumpy and you sift through it you know a lot of, you know, we're looking for electrical components and things like that to reconstruct the crime scene um there's just to, in my opinion there's no way that hair came out of something like that I think it was he said it was found back in the pile of processed material, but I don't – I personally, I don't think that it was like sifted through in the ashes. I think it was just back there.
2: Regarding the socks, uh, Veronica says, not related to the episode, but I saw a comment saying Javi's DNA was tested against the RNA on uh, Becky's socks. We just talked about this, but uh, Veronica didn't remember if that was – if that had been established and – Wanted to get that confirmed or denied. And then Karina weighed in and said she thought that it was the episode with the DNA expert. But I just wanted to toss this in there in case you knew right off the top of your head if that's.
1: Well, can, can you, I'm sorry, can you repeat the beginning of that a little bit? I-
2: Veronica saw a comment saying that Javi's DNA was tested against the DNA on Becky's socks. But oh, yes. uh, Veronica did not remember that being established and was looking for, uh, to be pointed in the direction of where where that had existed, if it was in an, what episode it was in.
1: Yeah, I can't point you to I, it, was it was the episode or the follow up after. Uh, when we had Susanna Ryan, the DNA expert on, because in the report, when she was reading through it, it didn't show that it was compared to anyone. And then I think during the course of that next week, I found more documents and sent them to her. And, and that's where we saw that they had compared it to. So that, so it is established. Robert, Christian, Javier, Jacob, all the victims. And I think Ron Friedley were all um, were all ruled out as contributors of the DNA and the socks. That was. Mm-hmm. That was established.
2: And Bo, was Bo also?
1: Possibly. Yeah. Pretty much everybody that, yeah, I think he was because I remember saying that because, because of course people were like, well, that DNA have been transferred from the, you know, socks grab DNA from everywhere. Right. Uh, which, you know, is true, but not in profiles like that. And it's not certainly the most likely scenario of how that DNA got there. But that, but I, re- I do recall like anyone we know that had been to that house anytime recently had been ruled out.
2: Yeah. But, but Teresa just brought up in the chat that it's, perhaps the keys could have been locker keys to Denny's if, in fact, they had lockers. That's an interesting idea. It could be. Um,
1: For those of you that are in the live stream and anybody listening to this later can go check it out. But I will put the picture of the of the keys in the case documents for Episode 59. I meant to do that and I just forgot to put it in.
2: Okay. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere.
0: Um, I'm going to just read part of Lana's
2: or Lana's. Sorry, Lana, Lana um, comment, essentially saying I'm just really struggling over this lack of testing the evidence. It just seems like such a crazy thing to not do. And this continues to raise concerns from Lana or Lana about something political happening here. Some uh, about, you know, kind of circling back to all the law enforcement connections in the case Mm -hmm. and wondering if there's a connection there between a lack of testing or a lack of work done. And all of these different people at play and factors at play.
1: There are a lot of theories out there about, you know, corruption and people covering, you know, a cover up or covering for someone. That's the last place I want to go unless I have evidence of that happening. It seems like there was like it certainly seems like there was kind of a construed effort to kind of protect Javier. Uh, but I don't think that makes Javier guilty, right? So, the, like, you know, right. his dad was worked in the D, in the DA's office. There was a the whole thing about the immunity, and of course, his mom was, which is a weird thing. I can't imagine that here, but it must have been a big deal there because everyone we talked to was like, Javier's mom was a politician down in the de- like. It always comes up, you know. So like, and people are like, you know, Bonnie Gar- Garcia's son. So like, even with teenagers, always said like Bonnie Garcia's son. So it definitely seems like I would put it this way: Javier had a support group a group of people uh, that support him that were actively trying to protect him. But I don't think that it just doesn't raise any red flags with me because I haven't seen anything to me to indicate that Javier had anything to do with this crime. So I, I think there may be a political angle that there's certainly a political angle about why this case got prosecuted at all. It was like reelection time and, you know, with hestern and Zellerbach, there was all the stuff and the stolen campaign signs and all that and people trying to solve this big case as a, to get a big win. The cold case unit, like there was a lot of reasons for that. I just don't think that there was. I, I my personal opinion, I don't. I think Leclerc was an idiot, is what I think. Like I don't think LeClaire was like, oh well, we don't want to test that DNA because that could be this person or that person or you know, or you know, this was an inside job with the police department. And we, I don't think it was anything like that. I think he was just terrible at his job. My personal opinion, unless I see something. indicate otherwise that there was some there's some kind of corruption to that level where there was like an intentionally hiding evidence at the beginning at you know the times when all this stuff should be I just I just I don't think that he has the intellect to even plan something like that
2: just circling back to the people whose DNA was tested uh, I just wanted to clarify out of curiosity Austin was never one of the people who was sort of on the radar for
1: testing Evidence I saw that, and I don't remember. I thought
2: we talked about them taking his DNA, and he, he did. He that did. They did. Yeah, they did get his DNA, but
1: yeah, and I, I just, I, I don't want to say yay or nay to that because I don't remember off the top of my head if Austin's DNA was tested against the sock DNA or not.
2: Got it. Kathy says, if someone was able to pull up, I love this comment. Kathy says, if someone was able to pull up the weather slash moon for that day and night. Is it also possible to pull up reports from the fire department to see if they made any more specific notes about the make and model slash year of the red truck or to pull up vehicle ownership records for that time period and area like the search for the white Elantra in the Idaho case? And then Kathy finishes with, I'm trying to establish my identity as the obsessed with the red truck lady. (laughs) Uh,
1: I mean, certainly law enforcement could do things like pull up. Who, First of all, no, I don't think there is any more information on the red truck. I mean, we 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 heard Williams testify about it. We see his report about it. Like he just, that's all, he, red truck, white bed. Uh, I believe he said one person in it. Um, smaller truck, that's all we know about it. Yeah, there's a world where law enforcement could, and again, that it doesn't have to be that complicated. It's not that big of a community. Like what should have, been, before they have to worry about any of that, like narrowing down who owns red trucks, they could have just knocked on the doors of the people that live in that community and asked them, "Hey, does it? Do you know who owns this truck? Have you ever seen a red truck with a white bed?" It would have been that simple. And again, it's just a big drop ball.
2: Right. Chris W says, "Uh, Barbara Wright says she arrived arrived home not long after the fire started. Did anyone report seeing her car? If no one saw her coming up the hill, isn't it plausible that neighbors didn't see anyone leaving?"
1: Oh, right. And, and if nobody saw her car. First of all, somebody else made a, uh, a post about this on the fan page the other day that I keep saying there was no car that left the scene because nobody saw. It. Uh, and then they had pointed, they had compared that to like, well, we know there was a red truck and nobody saw that red truck either. Uh, and so I want to make clear, right? my point is there's no evidence that anyone left in a car, right? You're working off a presumption of innocence. What evidence do you have that someone left in a car? no one said they saw a car. Also, it's kind of apples and oranges because the red truck, and I'm going to get to, back to Barbara Wright's car, uh, the red truck was found or was spotted way down in the south end of the neighborhood, nowhere near the crime scene. It was headed in the direct, they say heading away from the crime scene. It was just the crime scene was north of it and it was headed south. It wasn't like it was like you know zipping around the corner from the crime scene. And no one down there was questioned if they saw a car. So the only people that were questioned were the were the people that were, Alerted to the fire early and were headed to the scene at that time, and the immediate neighbors right there were the ones that were spoken to. Those people didn't see any vehicle. Now, Barbara Wright, she came, she was heading towards the crime scene on the east side of the neighborhood and came up. she she was you know she was on Alpine Drive for just that little just to turn that quick little corner right there east of the crime scene. We don't know if other people saw her car because they didn't ask anyone if anybody saw her car. So when I'm talking about nobody seeing, uh, seeing a vehicle up there, you have from like 940, according to the Captain Williams, on people that are looking like, oh, shit, there's a fire. They're looking at it. They're calling 911. They're driving towards it. And no one sees a vehicle driving away from it. Nobody sees a vehicle driving Alpine Drive. And I should qualify that, too. No one says they saw a vehicle. Shockingly, what's never asked any of them in any of their interviews is Did you see a car leaving the crime scene? Did you see a car on Alpine Drive? None of them are ever asked that question. Now, I, common sense wise, would think if there was this arson and triple homicide and you were there right at the beginning and you saw a car driving away from the crime scene, that you would mention. I saw a car driving away from the crime scene. I cannot imagine anyone would not bring that up if they had seen it. But the difference is with Barbara Wright, she's heading not away from, but towards a crime scene way over on the east side of the neighborhood before anyone was alerted to the fact that there was a fire. No one was looking. No one was suspicious. And it certainly I wouldn't think would stick out in anybody's mind. If they look out and see a fire and happen to see a car driving towards the crime scene and going to a different house.
2: Right. Fair enough.
1: Um, real, real quick, just to, just to catch up with the chat, Montana is in the chat and wanted to know, uh, this is back to you, we were talking about DNA. She said, mm-hmm. why did they go to a private lab for DNA testing? Was there a wait if they had gone with the DOJ lab? Yeah, that was one of the weird things that were pointed out by, I think, Dolan and Moore was the DNA stuff was taken to the DOJ lab. And then they said it was gonna be like I don't remember, four months or something, or a certain amount of weeks. It was gonna take a long time to get the DNA testing. So then they took it back and then and then sent it to a private lab, which took a lot I mean, they like they pulled sector data a year later. Like I, and again, I'm not I'm not even claiming there's corruption like, oh, well, instead we're going to pay because I don't think they knew who they wanted to arrest at that point. Mm-hmm. But it's a weird excuse like, oh, we don't want to wait four months for this DNA. So we're going to send it somewhere else and spend ten, twenty thousand $20,000 to have another lab do it. That still we didn't get results back until about the same time we would have got the results back from the other place. And then also. We only got Becky's – or the Friedley home phone record for 48 hours because it costs 150 bucks a, uh, a day, and we don't want to pay any more for that. Like, it's just a weird disconnect. But, yeah, Montana, that was the reason they gave was that it was going to take too long at the DOJ lab, so they sent it from um, – they, they sent it to a private lab. And regarding the – you mentioned the moon thing, and a few people are talking about it, – it was, it was it wasn't the point of their question – uh, but I do want to point out too, when people were talking about the moon phases, because I saw a post on Facebook where people were regarding the car. Right? Mm-hmm. They were talking about. Somebody said, "Well, they would have driven with the with the lights off." There are no street lights up there.
2: Oh, you can't do that.
1: Yeah, it, 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 there's no street lights up there, and somebody had uh, uh, had pointed out what the moon phase was. It's even more important to point out there was no moon. So that so regardless of what the moon phase was. Moonrise was at the top of my head, I want to say four in the morning, maybe it was two in the morning, hmm. but the moon was not in the sky at the time of the murders, so it was pitch black no and, and that's one of the reasons again, like even if headlights were off and it was just brake lights, they would stick out like a sore thumb up there because it was it was so dark if somebody was leaving and then if your theory is well maybe it was Robert and Christian and they left and they just kept their lights off, let's go back to that drive test time now. <laughs> When you have to drive out of that neighborhood in those roads in the pitch black with no headlights on.
2: Right. Yeah. If this was planned and anybody planning it knew the area and knew that, I would imagine that that person or people would build into their plan that they could not drive out of that site without it being an issue. And that you would sort of plan to not be in a car for at least some portion of the immediate vicinity around the house. But
1: Yeah. And it's... And again, when you get back to like the red truck and even Barbara Wright, you have to understand where the friedleys lived where 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 John and Becky and Becky lived was the almost the most remote area of that so down where the red truck is seen, there are i don't know fifty hundred houses north of there, I don't know fifty I'm guessing there but there's a bunch of houses north of there and and a bunch of different roads and stuff so to see a car headed south at that point wouldn't stick out in your mind because it could have come from anywhere, any one of those houses. But the crime scene is on the farthest North street on the North side of the road in the dead center away from other roads. It's way out there. So seeing a car driving down that part of Alpine drive, there's, there's like four houses. Look in the aerial maps. Like, like it, it is very different to see a car driving down Alpine drive at 10 o'clock at night than it is to see one down by Buckthorn, where that other car was seen.
2: Right. Valeria commented, something struck me when I heard Moore's summary of the Friedleys' escape plan. Quote, something goes wrong. You go out the window, go out the back to the hills. Lair says, I went back to look at Drew's interview and she said she felt, quote, unsafe up there. And again, that the plan was to run toward the mountain or to a neighbor. What was this escape plan for? It makes no sense to me if there's a fire either in the house or in the desert.
1: I don't know if this is something that was told to me, so it may not be accurate, or if it was that I read in one of the interviews, but my understanding in my mind was this went all the way back to the days when Ron lived there and he was a working police officer. And the plan was always like if somebody if something happened because of Ron's connections to law enforcement and the fact that, you know, there's criminals that don't like him. Because remember, the whole trip, uh, Trepini thing with the murder out there that he came to his house. Uh, they were, you know, the you know buying guns from you know, Tiffany had said something about him buying guns from him or storing guns from him. So I, my understanding was always that it had to do with that. Like if something ever goes down because of something related to Ron's work. Then it's go out the window, go out the back, and then run back into the hills. Hmm. That was my understanding of it. But but if somebody who uh, has some time on their hand wants to search back through those interviews uh, and, and see if you can confirm that. But that was my understanding of it.
2: Gotcha. Teresa says could either – and we're almost done. Could either of the defense attorneys mention that there were previous charges that were dropped and point out the new or additional evidence that came in with this trial? They didn't have Jeremy Witt. I think the drive test by Bodmer and the cell coverage maps with the gar devi- with the gar device is what was new.
1: Oh no. Okay. Yeah, I, I don't think so. I do, I don't think that. I mean, there's a lot. There's so many rules about even bringing up somebody's past offenses or anything like that. Anything that might prejudice the jury. And I I I will say, without searching through it, that I can almost guarantee that they were not allowed to bring up the fact that they that the state had already dropped the case once. Okay. I I seriously doubt that's the case.
2: Jason says, "Are we going to hear any of the defense team's private investigators' interviews?"
1: I don't I don't have any of those interviews. What I have is the state's discovery file, the the the, the file that the state presented as discovery.
2: Okay. Valeria says, "Can you share a copy of the images slash video reconstruction of the house made by Uli and Dylan?"
1: Uli and Dylan and I are in a group chat on Facebook about when they were making that. And Uli brought it up last week and Dylan said that 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 he could email it to me. I don't think I've seen that email but I'll I'll touch back on that again to see if we can get that cuz what he did is he put together like a CAD design of of the house and at least in the version that I, I think he was going to make it into like a movie cuz the version I had you, you were able to like drag and move around to see like how the house was laid out based on what we can reconstruct based on drawings and the crime scene photos.
2: Okay. And then I just wanted to acknowledge that, you know, there were people who really enjoyed you getting very angry um, in the episode. Uh, (laughs) So they want you to feel free to do that. And um, (laughs) in fact, Rosalind says, can we change the theme music to y'all going to make me lose my mind by DMX? Because that's what rolls through my head every time Bob Ruff gets pissed and says he's going to lose it.
1: We were discussing this in the... um in the Patreon hour before this, there was a little, I I don't think anybody caught the little clunks that I had in there. Um, But I was writing the episode as, as in real time, as I was going through the materials and I had found the, the report about the hair. Also, I want to give another, I have already, but a big shout out to Valeria again, Mm -hmm. because, because Valeria just happened to a week before found the information about that lighter and brought it to my attention is the only reason i ended up down this rabbit hole to begin with because you know more in his cross you know it says you know she grabbed that green, you know you know they used that green lighter and started the fire that jumped like i was like oh that's the lighter that valerie was talking about had had she not done that there's a good chance the way my brain works i would have read right past that and not just thought he was just making up a lighter not that they had actually found one on the on the scene but Uh, So I was down that rabbit hole, found the report about the hair, and then wrote this whole thing about how we don't know anything about the hair, got way down further into the script, and then ran down that rabbit hole and found, like, the picture of the hair and all that. And so everything from the first moment I mentioned the hair until, like, that next break was not in the script. That was just me finding it and just going off about it, which it was (laughs) – You may note me going, that hair, the most logical thing is it could be Becky's. And then a little while later, you hear me going, it can't be Becky's. It's because of the order of when I wrote it and when I just kind of lost it. So anyway, it definitely makes me want to lose my mind too. (laughs) Every single day of this case is killing me.
2: I know. Anyway, so that's what I have for this week. Thanks, everybody, for all of your amazing feedback. The one thing that we did want to make sure we did not miss, and thanks, Jennifer and Valeria, for making sure I remember this, is that we did want to wish Robert Pape a very happy birthday, as happy as you can Mm -hmm. experience one if you are in prison for something you didn't do. If that's biased, sorry. I feel like we've already established that that is the point of view of this podcast. Yeah.
1: And so his birthday was yesterday, right, which when you're hearing this was Tuesday. And and uh, look for Valeria on Facebook if you want to, because she's she's helped organize some messages from listeners and stuff to to send to Robert. So. All right. So that is all we have for today. We're going to wrap things up. Make sure that you tune in on uh, on Sunday when we're going to finally wrap up the trial. We get the final word heard by the jury, which was the state's rebuttal by Aki. Uh, and it's a little bit different presentation than you're used to. You're going to get the, the the full context of everything that Aki said to the jury before they went in to deliberate. Tune in on Sunday for that. Everybody, make sure you uh, tell Zach to get well so that he can be back next week.
2: Yeah, get well soon, Zach. We miss you.
1: Yep. And we'll see everybody. Uh, love all you guys. Thank you guys all in the YouTube chat and for your Facebook question. We'll talk to you next week. Thanks, everybody. Justice is an NBI Studios production and is distributed by Wondery, edited by Kelly Barron's Brink, and all music for the show was created by puttheminasong.com. Our follow-up logo was created by me, and all of our font across all of our logos and banners were created by Tate Krupa of Red Swan Graphic Design. You can find more of Tate's work on Etsy. Thank you to Katie Ross of createdintandem.com for designing, creating, managing, and maintaining our website, truthandjusticepod.com, where you can view all photos and documents discussed in every episode. And a big thank you to our transcription team, Pamela Westby. Kathy McElaney, Kay wood Ginger Viola, Erica Cantor, Danielle Rohr, Jennifer Ford, Courtney Wimberly, and Melissa Cardenas. And as always, thank you to all of you for all of your engagement and support. If you like the show and you'd like to support us, you can do so in several ways. To financially support the show, the best thing you can do is just go to patreon.com slash truthandjustice. You'll not only be supporting the show, but you'll get something in return. On Patreon, you can pledge little as $3 a month, and we have reward levels. For just $5 a month, you get access to ad-free versions of all of our episodes and behind-the-scenes bonus video content every week. Then other reward levels include t-shirts, hats, and even the opportunity to co-host one of our Friday follow-up episodes. Just go to patreon.com slash truthandjustice. You can also do us a huge favor by going to iTunes and leaving us a five-star rating and review. And lastly, you can always support us by supporting the brands that sponsor this program. If you have a new case that you'd like us to consider for future seasons, you can submit your cases on our website, truthandjusticepod.com. Just click on the case submission button and fill out the form. And the most important thing that you can do is to engage in our investigations. You can keep in touch with us through our email at theories at truthandjusticepod.com. You can like our Facebook page or join in on the conversation on the Truth and Justice Podcast fans page on Facebook. And for all you tweeters out there, you can connect with us on Twitter at Truth Justice Pod. To follow our personal accounts on social media, I can be found in all forms at Bob Ruff Truth. Janet can be found at Janet Varney, and Zach is at Z to the Q. And don't forget that we always have our 24 7 voicemail line open for questions, comments, or tips on our cases. That phone number is 269 224 2833. However, you do it, stay engaged, stay in touch. As for now, we're signing off. I'm Bob Ruff. I'm Zach Weaver.
2: And I'm Janet Varney.
1: And this has been Truth and Justice.
2: So I'm going to go ahead and do some hot, hot improv and we're going to see how this goes. We'll see what he brought to the table. (laughs) I was doing so well. Kelly, that is when you come and you get yourself like your own boogeyman. Right? That's usable. Huh? And when we come back, we'll see what Mr. Moore, uh, Esquire, the lawyer. What's happening? What's happening? Where am I? What's happening to me?